and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. And I do have a peer review. Uh, the peer review is we were talking about Gulliver's Travels last week. And we were talking about languages because Gulliver is a douche nozzle and didn't bother to learn anyone's language when he thought they were beneath him. So we were talking about why language is so important to culture. And I brought up that Anuktitut has 24 words for snow. And that was a mistake. And I would like to formally correct that mistake. Anuktitut has 22 words for snow and ice. And fun fact, it's not even the language that has the most words for snow and ice because Scots has like 421 words for snow. I guess because the Scottish Highlands are very cold and I have been there and I did need to wear a winter jacket in June. So I would believe it. I would believe they'd need over 400 words for snow. Also, I said that uh, Japanese doesn't have a word for bitch, but that's not really fair to say. It doesn't have a word that's a direct translation of bitch, but they use an equivalent that basically means like more sexually promiscuous connotations. Mm. But you know what? I'm not going to make claims about languages I don't speak anymore. But I do think it's very important to be able to learn a language in order to understand a culture fully. Well, yeah, 100%. Like, I wouldn't have as much of an understanding, and I don't have that great of an understanding of Anishinaabe culture as I do if I hadn't taken the language course they took. If I hadn't learned Ojibwe, I wouldn't know half the things I know about the culture and the history and be able to apply it to my other understandings of indigenous cultures in Canada, but they're all different and I don't speak all the languages. I barely speak Ojibwe. And 100%, like it's really important, I think, to learn an indigenous language. I think it's important to learn at least one so that you can have a better understanding of either the the culture of the people from the area that you come from or the area that you're in now because I think that there's such a barrier and indigenous people have mostly had their languages stripped from them in Canada and it's important to be able to carry on that part of the culture. So I think everyone should learn an indigenous language. Well, that's a good peer review, Chantel. Very good point. Thank you. What book are we talking about, Amy? So this week, um, as mentioned last week, Per our last podcast episode, uh, we will be talking about The Book of Negroes by Lawrence Hill. I like how you say per, like a really passive-aggressive work email. <laughs> per my last communication, which you should have read. I'm feeling very passive-aggressive today, just in general. <laughs> Roll with it. <laughs> the Book of Negroes is a 2007 novel written by Lawrence Hill. Um, Lawrence Hill is a black Canadian author who... Uh, oh, it's Canadian. Yeah. It's a Canadian book. Cam lit again. Ta-da! I love when we do cam lit. It's important that it's a Canadian book. I'll get to that. But you have to let me get to it. Okay. Lawrence Hill's father was the first director and chairperson of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Oh, nice. His mother was also a human rights activist for the Toronto Labour Committee for Human Rights. Heck yeah. Um, Hill received an MA in writing from John Hopkins and splits his time between Ontario and Newfoundland. To be noted, he does live in the armpit of Ontario, which is Hamilton. <laughs> I gotta dig at Hamilton, you know? Poor Hamilton. <laughs> Hill is both a fiction and a non-fiction writer reclaim. The Book of Negroes won several awards, including the Rogers Wright Trust Fiction Prize, both CBC Radio's Canada Reads and Radio-Canada's Le Combat des Livres, and the Commonwealth Writers Prize for Best Book. 
The novel has been chosen by community or academic reading programs as a central work for discussion at the Dalhousie University twice, at Trent University, and the Calgary Public University. It's very uh, widespread, ranging across all of Canada. All of Canada. There's a bunch more, but I got confused because there's numbers in my citations here and it's making my brain feel wonky. I also think that it's important to note that in America, uh, New Zealand and Australia, the Book of Negroes is published under Someone Knows My Name. And that is relevant because we have listeners from all three of those countries. Hello. Nope. <laughs> Don't. Hi. No. I'm keeping it in. I was gonna say hello, wallabies, but I'm um, not gonna. I think that's the wrong accent. Most likely. You want more like a wallaby? Didgeridoo, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Have you ever tried to say no in um Yes, it's very frustrating. No. I hope that he's listening to this because Nathan Brown from Breaking Down Bad Books is Australian and he says no all the time because he's just constantly disagreeing with the characters in the bad books he's reading. And Constantly, every time, I try to mimic the way that he says no, and I literally cannot do it. No. 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 <laughs> no, it's just not right. You just can't do it. You know why we can't do it? Because our mouths are the wrong shape. Being in the southern hemisphere shapes your mouth differently. <laughs> Actually, that's a thing with accents and why people can't do accents sometimes. Um, like, you can't see your French R's. But I believe yeah. that... Australian people don't even need for us to pretend to be able to say the word no because they're just so agreeable. <laughs> so when we're mimicking them out of love and respect, we don't even need to say a negative word. We only need to say wallabies. That's an interesting theory. I have a follow-up question. <laughs> have you ever met an Australian person? Yes. Actually, we had um, an exchange student in my high school. Okay. Shout out to David. Yo, David. Shout out to every Australian person I went on my tour of the UK and Ireland with because every time Australians leave Australia, they stay away and go on a million travel tours because it's super hard to go other places. So once you're out, you just gotta keep going until you find your way back and you know the earth <laughs> is round so you have to go around if you just go in a straight line yeah and that's what travel narratives are about so anyway the book of negroes the book of negroes was also a miniseries made by cbc that came out in 2015 and hill co-wrote it so as the book of negroes slash someone knows my name has two titles i thought it would be interesting for us to delve into why it has two titles please of the title hill says and I'm quoting directly from Wikipedia here. I'm ready for it. I used the Book of Negroes as a title for my novel in Canada because it derives from a historical document of the same name, kept by British naval officers at the tail end of the American Revolutionary War. It documents the 3,000 blacks who had served under the king in the war and were fleeing Manhattan for Canada in 1783. Oh, so was it like a list? Yes. A list of people? Yes. Right, you haven't read this book. This is important. I have not. Okay, so important context. I have not read this book. It was in a class that I was not in. It's just, we think it's important to talk about. Yes, the Book of Negroes was a real book, like a real ledger. And unless you were in the Book of Negroes, you couldn't escape to Canada. So you got into the Book of Negroes if you had helped the English in the Revolutionary War. And if you weren't in it, you couldn't escape via their ships. Okay, that seems like it's very exploitative. Oh, 100%. We're not saying it's good. Like, we'll help you, but only if you put your life on the line for us first. But not for us, like us, some people, us 
like our power and our like egos and our dick measuring contest yeah it was essentially like just a like i guess we can give you freedom in canada kind of thing Mm. They also would have been, you know, fairly in danger had they stayed in the U.S. for helping the British Army. Yes. Yeah, that's true indeed. So, um, yeah. Hill's character, an African woman named Aminata Diallo, uh, whose story is based in this history, has to get into the book before she gets out. Very little people complained about the title in Canada. And when they did complain about it after he explained the whole historical perspective, they were just like, oh, yeah, cool. That makes sense. Well, like, why would you complain? Bitch, I'm getting there. Someone... <laughs> reclaiming their own words so the reason um that people in canada were complaining about it is because of the american influence because negroes in america is not seen the same way it's seen here it's not pejorative here it se- makes you sound more dated than anything else it's not currently used like it no. used to be a pejorative but it isn't anymore it's just like something you just wouldn't say because it's like an old old pejorative yeah it's like Something you would say on the way to the sock hop if you wanted to be offensive, you know? Hill brings up an important point here and like the reason why his publisher changed the, the name. He said, When I began touring with the novel in some major U.S. cities, literary African Americans kept approaching me and telling me it was a good thing indeed that the title had changed because they would never have touched the book with its Canadian title. Oh. So it's extremely racially coded in the U.S. It's not as racially coded here. So I apologize preemptively to our American listeners. I'm not going to censor the title of a book. So there's some contentious stuff going on with the title here, um, but it's a very critically acclaimed book. The Book of Negroes comes to us in four parts, much like Gulliver's Travel. Oh, interesting. I wonder if you could write a comparative essay about that. Oh, I wonder if you could. (laughs) So Aminata Diallo is the daughter of a jeweler and a midwife. She's kidnapped at the age of 11 from her village in Bayo, Niger, in West Africa. She's forced to walk for three months. I'm going to stop myself here. I need to put some content warnings on this book. There are mentions of rape, of slavery, obviously, of children dying, whipping. Just if you're feeling in any way, shape, or form a little bit down, or you just don't have the mental capacity to deal with difficult topics today, please sit this one out. Yeah, every book about slavery is going to have these topics, and it's very hard to read, but it would have been even harder to live. So I feel like we have a responsibility to talk about it. Yeah, so we're gonna, and it's gonna be a good podcast, but if you're like, I don't have the energy for this today. Absolutely, be kind to yourself. Yeah, go have like a cookie or something that makes you happy and uh, go listen to our episode that came out like on a Monday, you know, the one with Megan, that was really cool. (laughs) Yeah, so even before she's placed on the ship, she vows that one day she will return. A boy her age, Shakura, he's been forced to assist the slave traders, but is later sent abroad just like the rest. He becomes Aminata's unlikely friend. After several horrific months of voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, including a slave revolt. Oh. Yeah, so people die, people get thrown overboard, people jump in the water. There's a typhoid, I think, that goes through the ship. Jeez, if it was a slave revolt, I think the slave traders should have died. That would have been good. That would have been a better ending. But it would have been a very short short travel narrative wouldn't it you travel to the middle of the ocean and then you travel right back to africa that's the travel <laughs> yeah unfortunately it doesn't work and uh they still are sold to people in america 
So eventually she arrives in South Carolina where she begins a new life as a slave. I wouldn't necessarily call this a life, but that's what Wikipedia has here. Her name is anglicized to Mina D. She's taken under the wing of a fellow slave named Georgia who helps her learn English. Seeing her intelligence and potential, a fellow Muslim slave named Mohammed secretly teaches her how to read and write. So there's a bunch of stuff here going on, you know, the regular plantation things. Aminata serves as a midwife for the people who are enslaved on the plantation. A bunch of these like horrific things happen, which has a really good relationship with fellow people who are enslaved. And as a teenager, Aminata manages to reunite with Shakura and they sneak off to meet once a month. The plantation owner, Appleby, learns of the meeting and punishes Aminata by raping her. Jeez. Yeah, we're, we're not surprised, but it was not pleasant to read. So despite her owner's jealousy, the two Aminata and Shakura marry and conceive a baby boy whom she names Mamadou. Appleby arranges for Aminata and her child to be sold separately so her son Mamadou is stolen from her. Aminata is handed over to a Jewish man named Solomon Lindo who moves her to Charlestown unaware of where her child may be. It's not good. It's not fun. Shakura gets beaten somewhere in this plot point and it's it's really horrific. You know by whom? I believe it's by the plantation owner. Like he also punishes him. So it's not good. Um, it's a fairly lengthy part of the book. Um, like the the book is very well written and it's, it's not a fun read, but it's a very engaging read. Yeah, like beloved. Sure, Shanta, like beloved. <laughs> Aminata grows close to Lindo and his wife who allows her to read and write openly, which is very unheard of. If you were somebody who was enslaved, you you weren't allowed to read and write, right? Because they didn't want you to gain that literacy because literacy means that you're a person, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, literacy means you can read revolutionary content and you can like forge your own freedom papers. Yeah. Solomon also requires her to pay him in part for any money that she earns through midwifery, which again, she learned when she was working with her mom because um, her mom was a midwife. Sorry, is that back in Africa that she learned to do that? Yeah, yeah, she learned with her mom and then um, she picked it up from the other women at the plantation. She's very young. Yeah, well, she was 11. Follow-up question. Yes. Did her mom get taken into slavery with her? I believe she was like kidnapped from her mom or something. Oh, wow. So she learned it with her mom. I don't quite remember how her mom and her got separated. I'm guessing it's some sort of violence. And also... Also, if she was 11, she might not even know because like everything could be happening so fast that she might not even really know what happened. Well, that's the part of it. Um, So I'll get into it later. But she like she didn't learn English until book two. Like she wouldn't have been able to understand the words that they were saying. Right. So like the first part of the book is a little bit less rooted in dialogue, I guess. So after a few years, a smallpox outbreak kills Lindo's wife and son. Shortly after, Aminata is once again reunited with Shakura, who has found out that Lindo helped arrange the selling of their son Mamadou, who he has been told died. This ruins the relationship that Aminata has had with Lindo. Attempting to win her over, Lindo takes Aminata to New York. During the rioting at the outbreak of the American Revolutionary War, Aminata is able to escape from Lindo. During this time, she works as a midwife and a teacher, helping other black people learn how to read. Which is really nice. Yeah. Like, it's a very uh, wholesome part of the book. Um, There's, like, this encampment, I guess. Like, it's a, it's a small community of rough housing it's in a clearing. I'm not describing this well. It kind of sounds like a old-timey tent city. Yes. It's exactly what it okay. is. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so she teaches them how to read there. She makes a lot of good connection. Proving that she has served the British army during the war, her name is entered in the Book of Negroes. Because of her ability to read and write, as well as her fluency in two African languages... Aminata is also hired to help record the names in the book. 
So a lot of the people that she's been helping out and that kind of stuff also find their way into the book. Nice. Overall, if Gulliver was a dumbass, Aminata is like the most brilliant human being to be written in a book. Would you say that Aminata is Gulliver's foil? Mm, not quite. Okay. It was a good try though. In that aspect, yes. But in every other aspect, oh boy, they are more similar than we think. Oh. I'll get to it. It's a four-parter. All right. I'm ready. So while doing this work, she is reunited for a few months with Shakura, who also served the British. They plan to resettle in Nova Scotia. Shout out to Canada. Was this not a whole thing? A shout out to Canada? It was. And she becomes pregnant with her second child. However, just as they're boarding the ship, the two are separated and Aminata is arrested as Appleby has put out a warrant for her arrest as a runaway slave. And we talked about this in our beloved episode, how people who had escaped from slavery could be recaptured under the laws of the time, even if they were in a quote unquote free state. The matter is resolved when Lindo appears in the court explaining the situation and simultaneously setting Aminata free. Aminata is once again trying to find her husband and finds another ship to Nova Scotia. Aminata arrives in Shelburne and begins to work in the black community of Birchtown, where she meets Jason, a young fellow whom she listed in the Book of Negroes, and Daddy Moses, a preacher. That's a great name. Daddy Moses? His name is Daddy Moses? Yeah. Like first name Daddy, last name Moses? I guess. I am obsessed with that. <laughs> yeah, if I remember correctly, he's a little uh, off the beaten path. But, uh... I love him. Yeah. Can I love him? Yes, I think. I love him. I don't remember much about him. Okay. So maybe you don't want to love him? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, you can love his name, though, because it's pretty rad. Unironically, I think that's an excellent name. Yeah. Soon after arriving, she gives birth to a second child, her daughter May, whom she catches herself, which may or may not be bad luck. So midwives are called baby catchers because they caught babies. Right. Right. It's a hard job catching the baby. I imagine that's not all they're doing, but it is a hard bit of the job. <laughs> well, you know, they just come wriggling out. But yeah, because there's no other midwife. And I think there might have been a snowstorm or something. Super cliche here. Hey, that sounds like my birth story. <laughs> right. But she, yeah, she catches the baby herself. Like she self-delivers, basically. And that may or may not be bad luck. Okay. Depends on who you ask kind of thing. Is it bad luck in the book? Well, let me read. Aminata finds work <laughs> for white people in town. Um, but after a few years... Relations between the black community and the white community break down. The white couple leave Nova Scotia and take May with her while Aminata is in Birchtown. She tries to locate her husband many times and learns that the ship carrying him to Nova Scotia had swept away to Bermuda and sank. That's not a good ending. No. A young British naval officer named Captain John Clarkson comes to the black Birchtown communities promising a better land reserved for them in Sierra Leone. Aminata helps Clarkson to gather people from the community and eventually they all leave for a better future. On her way to Africa, Aminata observes the ship carrying thousands of slaves bound for America. In Sierra Leone, the black communities attempt to establish Freetown, despite the strict rules of the British. History repeating itself, despite Clarkson's efforts, Freetown is not the safe haven that it was meant to be. It is located just a few miles from a slave trading center, the very same one from which Aminata was sent for America the first time around. Oh geez, there's still slave trading happening? Yeah, this is just like around 1776 right? Yeah. Also, shout out to Hamilton for teaching me when the Revolutionary War happened, despite the fact that I took an American history class. Yep. <laughs> I was like, 1776. Yeah, Hamilton, the uh, the musical, not Hamilton, the armpit, armpit of, of Ontario. Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Clarkson offers to take her to London, where a group of abolitionists need a spokesperson against slavery. However, longing to return to her village, which she had sworn that she was going to do, in the interior of Africa, Amanada negotiates with a slave trader to take her there. It takes many years before he agrees. It is a difficult journey, especially since Amanada is no longer super young. She is slowing the group down and overhears the traders talking about how they will sell her back into slavery to get rid of her. After escaping to a nearby village and telling them her story, Amanada finally realizes what is more important than returning to her home village of Bayou. She sees herself as meant to help free other people from slavery. She takes Clarkson up on his offer. As an old woman, she finds herself taking a voyage one more time to England to present the accounts of her life so it may help abolish the slave trade. She publishes her life story speaks at schools and churches, and even meets the king and queen. She is eventually reunited with her daughter May, and May cares for Amanada until her dying day. Aww. And that's my summary of the Book of Negroes. So I wrote an essay about this. You did write an essay. Yes. I want to give you guys the match that lit this essay on fire for me kind of thing. What sparked your flame, Amy? Thank you. Give it to me. Give me your thesis. Amanada reads Gulliver's Travels. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Isn't it great? And she talks about it in the book so i was when like when did she read it um i believe when she's with lindo that's in the north yes so because it's in the book i started making parallels and i wrote contemporaries a relationship between hills the book of negroes and swift's gulliver's travels can i can i try yes so there's traveling to a place <laughs> and then back from that place mm -hmm. we've got four books we've got a shipwreck Probably the slave traders are not bothering to learn Amanada's language, I'm going to guess. Do you want me to just get into it? Okay. I mean, you were doing great, but you were missing some key points. That's fair. I didn't read the book, so that's valid. So Hill wrote the book in the traditional manner of slave narratives, but I posit that it's also just written in the traditional manner travel narratives. And how would you describe the writing style of a travel narrative? Like there's travel? There's travel, yes. There is travel in a travel narrative. So travel narratives, as the word implies, include a travel and most of the times some kind of anthropological descriptions. Cool. Then there's also a bunch of like sentimentalism and humanism that gets peppered in the back. So like this land is so beautiful and you could not possibly understand this land if you've never been here. Like that kind of thing is a travel narrative. Yeah. So it starts with like, we are going to uh, India and we are going to find the spices. <laughs> Uh, and we found all these people and we think they are people from India. And it's like, no, bud, you just hit North America. <laughs> Surprise, there's a landmass. To like people who are like, I went to Greece and I feel like a brand new person. And I'm thinking about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's American. And then somewhere in the middle, <laughs> there's Gulliver's Travels, which satirize both travel narratives and English society. Lawrence Hill's The Book of Negroes provides a similar disruptive force in the post-colonial revival of slave narratives. Both Gulliver and Aminata are storytellers who, through their storytelling, dispel the traditional conventions of the travel narrative. Is she a writer? Like, she writes- Yeah. She writes in the book. Yeah. As well as she's writing the book. Yeah. The book is like her telling her story. It's one of those. Is it like a thing that she writes when she's older mm -hmm. and she has become the author telling her story? Yeah, it all comes together in the end. Ah, I see it. I see it. You okay. see it now? 
Okay. She's like, and then I became an author. And you're like, ah, I see. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Cool, cool. The intertext of Swift's Gulliver's Travels and Hill's The Book of Negroes provides a compelling take on the historical narrative, transforming a slave narrative written in the 21st century into a travel narrative set in the 18th century. Yes. The use of an almost identical first-person narrative structure, intertextual citations, the similarity between the othering of both Aminata and Lemuel illustrate the true genre of Hill's novel, which is a travel narrative. It's a weird essay. It's good, though, because, like, when she would have been writing it within the fiction of the story, like, slave narratives wasn't a genre. No. It was a genre that was imposed on this particular type of narrative after slavery ended. So when she's writing it within that time, she would be writing like a travel narrative. Yeah. So I, it makes sense. It makes complete sense. Because Gulliver's Travels came out in like 1738, give or take. And they're set around the same time too then. Yeah, it's about 50 years removed. Which is not that far away when you're talking about that far back in history. Yeah, an intercontinental travel. Yeah, it's fine. The Book of Negro's intertextual relationship uh, with Gulliver's Travels begin foremost with the identical narrative structure. So we have four parts. Right? Right. We do. We have four parts. We have a ship that brings them. One is forced, the other is not. But then again, you know, Lemuel was kind of forced to take the job on the ship because he wasn't a very good surgeon. He also didn't intend to end up any of the places where he went. No. And some of the places he was like forcibly put... Like, yeah. I'm not saying that Gulliver being kidnapped by pirates is the same thing as hundreds of years of systemic kidnapping into slavery, but he also did not intend to sail to, like, Laputa. Yeah. In book two, Gulliver is treated like a creature who had no sorts of consequence by the Brobdingnagians, who repeatedly undress him and display him for his entertainment. Aminata is put on display and objectified in the same way. When describing the slave market, she says, so many people were packed into the space that I thought it was a market, oh. like a market market. But at this point, she didn't understand the concept of selling people, which I think we could all benefit from not understanding the concept if it didn't exist. Yeah. So, you know, book two in both novels demonstrates the abuse the protagonist faces at the hand of a more powerful people. And this is a sensitive topic. So content warning again, skip like 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. But is book two when she gets raped? Book two would be when she gets raped. Yeah. And book two is also when Gulliver is like the victim of sexual abuse because he is used by the giant women. Yes. It's not like a fun crossover, but it is a crossover that is the result of what happens when you treat people as commodities. Yes. Book three, Gulliver goes on a bunch of random adventures. We're not going to talk about them because nobody cares. Uh... <laughs> about book three for Gulliver <laughs> but the very rational beings of mathematical prowess um, that he meets are very similar to Solomon Lindo uh, whose house is Aminata and teaches her how to barter for money and focus on the mathematical aspect of trade. That's very interesting. Remember he's the one who sold her son Oh. because why would you want to buy a slave who also has a child because then she can't give you all of her time. Uh yeah I mean in Beloved wherein we were reading about people with a lot of slaves on the plantations it was also not good because they would like kind of keep the mothers and children together but also like just on the same plantation and then one person would be in charge of all the kids and then the rest of the moms would have to go work on the field yeah but when you have only one of them 
Yeah. You know? Again, what happens when we treat human beings as a commodity? Yep. You break up bonds between people that are very important. Yep. So, you know, Solomon's teaching become useful for her as she spends the rest of book three in a very empirical position, writing in the Book of Negroes. So, like, all the things, like, his wife taught her and he taught her, like, they're all very good for Aminata. The same way that, like, you know, Gulliver could learn from the people he met during book three, I guess. So, they're similar in that way. So, book four becomes the clearest in terms of the intertext that's happening um because there's a lot of intertext of the other and i remember our talk about the other still some here yes i remember how gulliver was the other in the land of the huinams because the huinams are horses yes both gulliver and aminata return to their homes in a state of alienation hear me out so obviously gulliver becomes like alienated in his homeland of england because you know he went with these horses he loved the fucking horses he learned about the fucking horses you know blah 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 huinams i feel like you're not a fan of the horses but the horses are very cool and i would like everyone to know that the horses are very cool the horses are very cool however <laughs> we've already talked about it which is why i'm kind of brushing over it aminata returns to africa feeling more nova scotian than african so um not to compare nova scotians with horses <laughs> but i guess that's kind of the parallel, except they're not horses. I mean, Gulliver going to live with the Quinnums and not feeling like a human anymore is a pretty good analogy, if problematic. Yeah. If you put them side by side of 100%. like what it's like to be in a diaspora and not feel like you're connected with your original place. Yeah. You think about how, you know, Gulliver goes and hangs out with his horses in the stable. Well, Aminata like goes to England in the end to be able to feel more at home. Whereas Gulliver doesn't give anything back to the world. Aminata's giving a lot back to the world. And they both end up back in England. Yep. So that's another one. Yes. Hmm. Mm. You know what? I bought into your comparative essay. Thank you. You're welcome. There's so much more. So a lot of Aminata's authenticity as a travel writer falls into the intertext between Gulliver's Travels and Book of Negroes. So in the Book of Negroes, sorry, I'm laughing at what I wrote. In the Book of Negroes, Aminata okay. describes the Lilliputian because, you know, she reads the book as placeholders for the English because they may be small, but they do wreak havoc. That's very hilarious. Yeah, so essentially, like, she uses a lot of Swift's writings to kind of find comfort in her position as a writer and to prove herself as a writer kind of thing. Which was a big thing that was happening in the travel narrative genre at the time. Of like calling back to other travelers. Because then you seemed more worldly. Yeah. You're making it seem like you're the contemporaries of these people who are already famous. So it's like, okay, you have to pay attention to me. Yeah. She further parallels Gulliver um, through her affirmation that she is truthfully relaying facts. Gulliver's Travels parodies actual travel journals with lengthy passages about conditions at sea and maps charting the routes of Gulliver's voyages and contains assurances by the narrator that he is a writer who relates only plain facts, thus differing from the common run-of-the-mill travel writers who impose the grossest falsities under unwary readers. Which is hilarious. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Of him to say. Aminata writes down her exact experience and the man's of the abolitionists change nothing in the book. So she specifically tells her like publishers and editors, you are not touching a word of this book. I am saying everything that needs to be said as truthfully as I can. So it's interesting she told the abolitionists not to change her narrative because 
because Harriet Jacobs was an actual writer of a, we would call it a slave narrative, but to her it was just like an autobiography. Yep. And it was published by abolitionists and apparently they heavily edited it. Yeah. Like their agenda was good, but they had lots of ideas going on that weren't necessarily like what she had intended with the book. So they had like edited it to fit their agenda. I know it's coming from a 2006 perspective and like he would have known that all this had happened. But it's interesting that she's like, don't edit my book. Yeah. Through their autonomous authorship, Amanetta and Gulliver give life to their journeys. When their claim to fact is contextualized within their biased positions, Gulliver's travels and the Book of Negroes force their readers to reflect on the ambiguities of their positions vis-a-vis this system of brutal conquest. Whereas like, you know, Gulliver gives us the story through the eye of the colonizer, Amanetta gives us the story through the eyes of a person who was enslaved, the colonized. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's a foil there for sure as well. So you weren't completely wrong. Thank you. I have my moments. So because her writing stems from her background as a storyteller, she falls into the category of slave narrators who made their names as speakers before they became writers. As you had mentioned before, you know, we have this idea of like writing their own stories, but these stories were put out into the world by voice before they were put onto paper. There's this reoccurring theme in the book that I didn't talk about earlier, but there's a map of Africa that kind of shows, you know, a bunch of like animals here and there, like elephants, rhinos, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And Amanda's very much conscious that that's not africa it's not her homeland it's entirely a white man's fantasy yeah like the lion king where the only people who exist in africa are lions yeah amanada becomes a white abolitionist ideal because her authority lends itself to the movement kind of like uh, harriet jacobs that you mentioned before yes want to talk about languages so much to say about it i would love to talk about languages you know i would <laughs> so gulliver's travels and the book of negroes position their protagonists as world travelers. Amanada, not by choice. And these travels, they discover the advantage of language learning can bring. Amanada's polyglottism saves her life countless times. Her knowledge of two African languages keeps her from the hold of the ship because um, she was able to help the slavers kind of like talk between people, between the people who were enslaved and themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also on that ship. She decides to learn the Tubidus language. The what language? Tubidus, I believe, is white man. T-O-U-B-A-B-U. In learning the white man's English, Amanada gives herself leverage. Gulliver learns linguistic advantage more slowly. We've talked about this before. He has a lot of miscommunication, whereas Amanada becomes a master almost immediately. And as such, she surpasses her contemporary. It provides her a powerful tool for forming relationships, which gives her power. She feels certain connections to other people that she meets when she goes back to Africa and feeds a kind of kinship to like decide to learn their language. It's also yeah. like she uses language to get a job. That's what gets her place into Lindo's house. Um, he knows that she can read and speak well and as such employs her to take care of his books and go to New York with him. When she talk like white folk, which is a direct quote from the book, she gains privileges that she would not otherwise have. Having read Gulliver's Travels actually gives her a place within Clarkson's rank because he sees that she's learned and possesses acceptable English characteristics, which are highly beneficial to her situation. The same way that, you know, being a highbrow yahoo helps Gulliver learn the Huynim's language and stay with them for a little bit. Yes. But despite all these advantages, learning languages places both Amanada and Gulliver in a dangerous position. I'm 
Yamanada uses her knowledge of language to manipulate her situation, but she must use this knowledge selectively. After being warned to never speak proper English to a buckra, which is another word for slave owner white people, she uses her feigned simpleness to keep herself out of trouble. By acting simple, she's not seen as a threat. Georgia, who's a lady that she was mentored by on the plantation, likewise believes Amanada's learning can be dangerous, warning her to watch out, girl. You know too much, someone will kill you. I feel like in every book that we've read about slavery, yeah. and I know there's only been two, but very regular things to do are the thing that people warn our protagonists are super dangerous, like yeah. being smart or loving your children a lot. Yeah. And it just hurts my heart yeah. that people couldn't live their personalities yeah. because not being able to be true to yourself is like such a hard thing. And it's so constrictive. This like unattained potential just because we've kept, by we I mean like society, kept so much knowledge away from people because if they were too knowledgeable they would be a threat. Think of how Canada had to assimilate and kill a bunch of indigenous children to remove all of the knowledge and the like you know sense of self that they had yeah. in order to like commit both a genocide and a cultural and a linguistic genocide yeah. on the indigenous people. That was a systemic thing that they saw worked down south yeah and like in other places for obviously sure. slavery was also in canada and stuff yeah slavery was for sure in canada as well but like systemically it's something that they were like it's still being done to like african americans like segregation there's three-fifth laws not being able to vote if you can't read like mm -hmm. This is all stuff that we learned from somewhere. We learned it also from ourselves, but like... Yeah, the entire residential school system was based off of the slavery in the American South and the actually there was stuff taken later on for indigenous laws, like laws from white people around indigenous folks that were taken from Nazi Germany. Yeah. So like all around, uh, Canada does not get a free pass. No, and uh, at some point we'll get to some of the indigenous books that we've read and we'll content warn you because that's going to be rough. But back to Amanada, yes. who learns the language of the Temne, who own the land around the settlement of Freetown, and tries to reassert her identity as an African woman. But she's not accepted as one because she knows too much English, because she's been within the white world for too long. Which also happened to indigenous people in Canada. It slowly dawns on Aminata that a black face does not make her anyone's kin, which is really sad. I'm guessing that's a direct quote. Yeah. In this circumstances, she is rejected despite her language learning. But you know, Gulliver was rejected by fucking horses, so that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and he was rejected by his family when he got back because he kept neighing at the dinner table and stuff. Yeah. These are very different types of books. It feels weird talking out this essay where one of them's a satire and one of them's like a very, very serious topic. Yeah. But um, you do have a lot of parallels and it's kind of freaking me out, man. I know. I do think they were intentional. Wait until I talk to you about currency and colonial economics. Oh, goodness. So you know how uh, when Gulliver produces his gold coins for the Brobdingnagian farmer, the latter turned it several times with the point of a pin but could make nothing of it? Like he was kind of like, what the fuck is this nonsense? I don't need this tiny little What's coin. What's this teeny, teeny, tiny thing that I can 
barely see. Aminata represents the other side of this equation because where Gulliver's like seeing the fact that like his money's not being used as like something that's like incomprehensible. He's like, it's English gold. Why don't you freaking want it? Yeah, the English are the best and you should recognize that. Aminata's confused about currency because it makes no sense to her that someone would prefer to be paid with a useless metal coin than with five chicken or a tierce of a corn. If you think about it for any amount of time, money is completely nonsensical and the barter system makes much more sense objectively. Right? (laughs) Her confusion reveals the constructed nature of Western economic systems that form the basis of imperialism and her consequent capture. She is thrust into a world that was governed by inconsequential piece of metal, and for her, it seems like a waste. In both novel, the characters' confusion others them because they do not understand the capitalist basis for the new societies they encounter. So there's also the literal society that they visit slash live in uh, that also others them. So you know how the Brobdingnadigans say the English live in little nest and burrows? Yes, and I do. And it undermines the scale of the British Empire? Yes. Aminata lives in the same sort of dwelling the Brobdingnadians describe for the British. She and Georgia live in a series of homes with mud walls and thatched roofs. That is reminiscent of, in quotation, burrows. In Nova Scotia, she and her village live in shacks or deep pits in the ground covered up with logs and evergreen burrows. Her conformity mm-hmm. to the Brobdingnadians image of the British situates her within the image of British society constructed by Gulliver's travels, which reinforces Swift's satire of the British Empire. That it is not as civilized as it believes. Yes, but also the concept of civilization is just so made up. dumb yeah. and made up and arbitrary yeah. because there's lots of ways to have a civilization. The way that that word is attributed to cultures now is like, is your culture Western enough for us to consider it a civilization? No, then you don't count. Yeah. Canada has been civilized for thousands of years. It's just the civilization didn't look like a European civilization. Yeah, as we're so hyper-focused on this English imperialism that we can't see past the tip of our nose. For sure. Colonizers absolutely did not realize that there was one more than one way to do things. And even today, that still happens. Like, how many indigenous cultures have been saying, like, we're better off doing controlled burns of, like, the forest floor when it's safe to do so than just waiting for it to burn in the middle of summer when it's dangerous for everyone in dry conditions, but nobody fucking listens to them. Yeah, or like the colonizers way back when, speaking of forests, would walk in and be like, oh, this is all forested land. Like, no one must live here. When actually, that was all just agriculture in a natural setting. Yeah. Like, that was cultivated forest to grow the foods that people needed to live on. Yeah. Both Amanetta and Gulliver are rejected from their new homes because despite their assimilation, they represent the visible signifier of the other. Their combined assimilation and otherness in this new land places them in the third space. Capital T, capital S. So they become the other in their homeland as well. Gulliver's position as the other in England destabilizes his objective eye on the other, the Whinnams. So like because he loses his sense of self, then he doesn't know who the other is and he thinks his family's the other. Blah, 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 blah. We talked about that last year, week. We did. And again, I would like to emphasize that his, this lesson he should have learned is that no one is the other. <laughs> the concept of the other is also made up. Yes. 
and he did not learn that that lesson. No. He just displaced which one he thought the other was. Yeah. Aminata is no longer understands who she is. She wondered just who exactly she was and what she had become after more than 30 years in the colonies. Mrs. Weatherspoon, this character in the book, comments on how she is quite a sight looking just like an apprentice printer in that lovely African garb. I think the word garb is so funky, problematic whenever it's used. Yeah. I feel like anyone's like, oh, if it's my culture, it's clothes. But if it's someone else's culture, it's garb. The only time you can use the word garb is if you're talking about like medieval gesture garb kind of thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's the only time. Yes. She takes on the role of a young white man while still wearing her African clothes. She embodies whiteness, but does not look like the white people do. This incongruity angers the white people because they see a visible other taking a white person's job. They all get offended about anything. Aminata, like Gulliver, is hated and rejected because she cannot assimilate fully. Much how in Africa, the Temne seem to think that she is just as foreign as if she were British. Because, you know, she speaks English very well. She has all these, like, colonial manners. She doesn't have like the same background they do. So to conclude, we're almost done. The Book of Negroes and Gulliver's Travels both create a disrupted force in the travel narrative genre. Swift satires unnerves the English superiority complex and Hill's novel provides the other, Amnata, with the agency to tell her own story. The novel are able to bridge the temporal gap between literary production, period, and setting. By positioning herself as Gulliver and Swift's contemporary, Amnata reclaims the agency denied to her in slavery and gains the power to discuss four migration as an intellectual equal or superior of her oppressors cool because she is the bomb.com good show yeah so that's the spiel come back next week when i add another book to this fucking nonsense very exciting i for one am very excited next week we will talk about kindred we thank you for coming on this little journey with us if you would like to leave us a review we would really appreciate a five-star review on apple podcasts or Podchaser. you can also contact us or just follow us on twitter or instagram at unsighted pod we are amy and Chantel. Chantel on Twitter, Amy on Instagram. Holla. And you can just come say hi. We love hearing from you guys. Thank you so much for listening. We hope to see you again in two weeks. And as always, we're excited. Unavailable. No. 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 No.